we ended last time, whenever the last time was, it's been so long, we were talking about Barton W. Stone and uh, how Barton, uh, Brother Stone, had, was uh, coming to the understanding that uh, Methodism and Presbyterianism and those things, uh, and those other isms that uh, the world, uh, Satan had foisted upon the world, how they were not uh, lining up with the statements of the Bible. He had become a become an ordained uh, Presbyterian te- uh, preacher. He didn't particularly agree with uh, the uh, uh, ideals and the catechisms and the uh, synods that oversaw the, the Presbyterian church. And uh, if you remember, when he had to make that statement that he would uh, that he agreed with the uh, articles of faith, he said, I agree with them and as far as they agree with the Bible. And so that kind of took the pressure off everybody. But over time, he began to see some things. And so... Uh, we come up to the year of 1801, and uh, some ideas are changing among uh, the people. And we've talked about different uh, places. Uh, uh, o. Kelly had uh, begun this restoration idea in uh, different parts of uh, uh, separate from where uh, Barton Stone was doing his work. He started out in uh, the Carolinas, Virginia area. He's made his way over to uh, uh, through Tennessee up into Kentucky. And uh, in 1801, <clears throat> a, great, a great revival began to happen. And people began to think of uh, spiritual things more. They began to look more toward what the Bible said as opposed to what all these varying different denominations taught and believed. And, and they were all different. And uh, <clears throat> in 1801, during this big revival that was going on, there were 18... Uh, Presbyterian preachers, now this is happening in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, and you can go to this spot today, <clears throat> and you can uh, go to the church house there at Cane Ridge, you can go in and if you want to, stand in the very pulpit where uh, Barton W. Stone preached, where Raccoon John Smith, and we'll get to him a little later on, where he preached when uh, <clears throat> the Campbells, the Campbell movement and the Barton W. Stone movement came together to form uh, the New Testament Church of Christ. <clears throat> or to restore it, rather. At any rate, at this great revival in 1801, there were a bunch of uh, Methodist and Baptist preachers. There were 18 Presbyterian preachers, and uh, they were meeting in various locations along the ridge. Remember, this is Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And uh, they were holding five to six gospel meetings every day. There's a lot of preaching going on, a lot of theology being taught, a lot of different things being taught. And uh, <clears throat> when this was going on, it was a very serious affair to people. You know, you can recall, or I, can, I can't recall, I remember my dad telling me about, and my grandmother telling me about uh, when they were growing up that, you know, you worked on the farm or whatever the case was, and really what you did in your off time was you went to church. If there was a uh, a tent meeting going on or arbor meeting going on, you know, they'd build a brush arbor and they may have a gospel meeting for weeks. And, uh, <clears throat> that was kind of what people did in their, in their off time. And, uh, uh, any of you ever listened to Jerry Clower? I don't know a lot of people today, younger people probably don't know who he is, but Jerry Clower would talk about a lot of things that happened in his life and that was, of course, he'd put a funny twist on it. And uh, 
you know, he's from Liberty, Mississippi, and he said, uh, you know, you were uh, laying your crops by and you were doing this and you were doing that. There wasn't a whole lot going on outside of having a good rat killing or going to uh, a gospel meeting somewhere. And so that's kind of what people were doing, and that was a big deal. And so you had all this going on, and uh, the things that were happening during this were, they were supposed to be very serious, uh, <clears throat> but their behavior was nothing short of comical. And they would come together, and they would want to be serious, and then they would get all tied up in this emotionalism, and they, they would just begin to behave uh, irrationally. They began to do some things. And uh, they uh, had to have a sign, right? We hear that. We talk to uh, members of denominations today, and, and they have to have a sign from God that they've been saved. Or uh, How many people have you ever heard uh, talk about a preacher, and the preacher uh, had to have a, a certain calling, right? <clears throat> I may have told you all this. I was up in Indiana preaching one time and uh, took kind of a question-answer session. And there was a lady uh, in the congregation who had married a member, but she wasn't a member. She was a member of the Friends Church, kind of a offshoot of the Quakers. And so she asked me what was my sign, what was my calling to want to become a preacher. You know, that's now we're into a big topic, right? That took up just about the whole time. But uh, for these people to be able to have a sign, <clears throat> they really went through some things that uh, you might say it looked like a convulsion. Maybe they were having some kind of a fit. And there were different ones that they would have. Uh, they would have one that was called falling. That was the most common one, and it just what it said. They would just fall down like they'd been struck. And uh, they would cry out, and they would scream, They'd lay there for several minutes as though they were dead, and then when they kind of came to, that was their sign that they had been converted. Had one they called uh, the jerks. In the convert, various parts of the body would jerk violently to one side and then the other. That was a sign of conversion. They had uh, what they called dancing. It really kind of started out with the jerks, but it just got hyped up so much it almost looked like they were dancing and uh, they would do that till they just fell to the ground in exhaustion. Uh, they had one they called uh, <clears throat> barking. Barking wasn't, you know, they just didn't fall down on the ground and start barking like a dog. It was really an episode of what they called the jerks. But <clears throat> when they jerked so suddenly and so violently they would grunt and it sounded like they were barking. Okay, uh, laughter and singing, just what the term indicates. They would begin just to laugh continuously for minutes upon minutes upon minutes and singing, and, and that was a sign of uh, uh, conversion. Now, we read that, and that's kind of comical until we really begin to think about it, right? Someone gets so emotional and so tied up, and why would they even have this idea of needing to have some kind of a sign? Now, what we're dealing with here, again, this was a big deal. You know, how many uh, gospel meetings go on uh, in today's uh, society and culture for weeks on end? I don't know of any. Maybe there is. I don't know. 
I don't hear of them. Uh, John Shannon periodically in the last few years, he, you know, he, uh, you can see him on, uh, GBN, black preacher out of, uh, uh, Memphis, Tennessee sound. I just love John Shannon. But, uh, he holds old time tent meetings where they actually put up a tent. He uses sheet sermons and he, he has had multiple week, uh, gospel meetings. He's the only person I know of that that, where that happens. But we've got a group of people who want to be saved so badly and they've been taught that you can't be saved unless there's some kind of a sign where the Holy Spirit is working on you and they've allowed that to manifest in their minds so much they believe that the Holy Spirit is working on them. They fall out. They jerk. They they dance. They laugh uncontrollably. That's not uh, that's not proper behavior, is it? Where does that where does that align itself with Paul's statement that we're to uh, worship uh, in uh, uh, decency and order? It's Far apart from that, isn't it? So it's really sad, <clears throat> excuse me, when we begin to think about how so impressed they, that was upon their minds that it would lead them to do things like that. It's just sad to me. Any comments, questions? Okay. Now, let's kind of go back to the subject matter of uh, the sermons that Barton W. Stone preached at this revival in 1801. Do you think he was preaching some things a little different from what the other Presbyterian preachers were teaching, what the Baptists were teaching, and what the Methodists were teaching? He absolutely was preaching something different. And do you think that caught anyone's attention? That caught everybody's attention, right? Now, when he was... Uh, Invited to speak at this great revival of 1801. Uh, his topic was the universality. Now let's think about this. The universality of the gospel and faith as a condition of salvation. Well, that's, that can't do anything but get him in trouble with the Presbyterians. Because what do, not just the Presbyterians, but what does Calvinism teach? Does Calvinism teach a universality? Oh no. They teach a small group of the elect, right? What about faith? You know, on the surface, they'll say, oh yeah, we gotta have faith. But really, does having faith and believing in something fit in with God making you become a Christian? Doesn't fit in with it, does it? So Barton W. Stone, he's going to talk about the universality of the gospel, and he's going to talk about the necessity of faith. So he's going to be in big trouble. That's not going to jive with what what they're teaching. So uh, uh, in the beginning in Kentucky, there was only the Transylvanian Presbytery. Okay, he was a Presbyterian. And up in that area, there was only one presbytery. But in 1799, uh, two others were added. You had West Lexington Presbytery and Washington Presbytery. Well, the Washington Presbytery oversaw uh, northeast Kentucky and southwest Ohio. And so it wasn't long before the presbytery 
began to oppose the doctrines that Stone was preaching when he was preaching at this uh, uh, Cane Ridge Revival. And so they marked Stone as a heretic. You're not teaching this Calvinistic doctrine. Remember, you know, we talked about Calvin, part of the Reformation movement. Uh, You know, when I think of these people, and I think about Martin Luther, and I think about Wycliffe, and we, you know, all those people, even in the Reformation movement, I think we owe them a a great debt of gratitude, right? Did they get it right? No, but they got the ball rolling, okay? Uh, But when I considered John Calvin, I don't feel endeared to him at all. I don't feel ingratiated to him at all because of the terrible things he's done. He has propagated, he didn't begin with the, he didn't, he wasn't the author of these false doctrines, but he was the greatest propagator of these false doctrines. That's why we call it Calvinism, right? We don't call it by a name of someone who came 500 years before Calvin. We call it Calvinism because he was such a great champion of it. And so, at any rate, uh, the Presbytery felt that the creed of the Presbyterian Church ought to be upheld at all cost. Barton Stone was causing a problem. And so, uh, Barton Stone fell under the critical eye of the Presbytery along with four other men. Now, this is going to be very important. We don't have to remember their names, but it's going to be very important that these five men began or, or uh, uh, began this movement of restoration. Now, here are the names of them if you, wanna, if, you, if you want them. Robert Marshall, Richard McNamara, John Dunlavy, Dunlavy, D-U-N-L-A-V-Y, and John Thompson. Now, the first sign of trouble centered around this man, man named John, uh, Richard McNamara, okay? And the Washington Presbytery condemned him for his Armenian views, okay? Now, what's the Armenian view? We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. In a statement, the Armenian view asserts God's sovereignty and humanity's free will are compatible. That goes against Calvinism, right? You don't have a free will. You're totally depraved, so God has to make you want to be uh, a Christian. Okay, well, that's not what this man taught. He taught this Armenian view. Now, this case went before the uh, Kentucky Synod. It had been formed in 1802, and uh, the, the Synod upheld the Washington Presbytery. We're not going to teach that. That's opposed to our creed. So now this man's having a problem. As a result, at this synod, Stone and these other men left. They said, okay, you're going to uphold this nonsense. We're not going to be a part of it. So what'd they do? They leave and they withdrew themselves from this synod. They sent an objection to what they believed was right and what they believed was wrong. And uh, they broke from the Presbyterian Church. Now, in his autobiography, Stone commented on the views he and his colleagues held. He said this, The distinguished doctrine preached by us was that God loved the world. Now, let's listen to his words. The whole world. And he sent his son to save them on condition that they believed in him. That the gospel was the means of salvation. 
but that this means would never be effectual to this end until believed and obeyed by us, that that God required us to believe in His Son and had given us sufficient evidence in His Word to produce faith in us if attended by us, that sinners were capable of understanding and believing this testimony and of acting upon it by coming to the Savior and obeying Him from Him obtaining salvation and the Holy Spirit. You'll never hear a Presbyterian say that. But you hear Barton Stone say it. So he had to, he got his bags and he went to the house. He left. He wasn't going to participate in that anymore. Of course, that absolutely goes against Calvinistic doctrine of today, then and now. And so... Uh, uh, Denying such falsities, Stone and his group said God loved humanity. He wanted everybody to be saved. But we see that. We read that throughout the New Testament, don't we? John 3, 16. That's, uh, that, that's kind of a sugar stick for faith only. That's a misinterpretation. But for some reason, they, for, they bypassed the phrase, for God so loved the world. Right? Not that he so loved a group of people he would choose against their will, because that's what it is. If you're totally depraved, if you come to God, it is against your will. God has to make you do that. And so Stone and these men stood up against that. Uh, and uh, in 1804, they said, well, Stone's a heretic. These men are heretics. So they left. the sent out of Kentucky. And you know, what did they do? They left that uh, presbytery, so what do you think they did? Now, they're not completely out of darkness yet. They start their own presbytery, okay? We're going to get out of that false presbytery. We're going to start our own presbytery. That kind of sounds like the Reformation movement a little bit, doesn't it? And so, let's see how that worked. Now, in the meantime, while Stone and these men are moving out and they're establishing their own presbytery, they send out letters, okay? They send out letters to all these congregations with which they have some kind of influence and some kind of a participation. And it's called the Apology of the Springfield Presbytery. That was the first document. Now, this word apology is not used in the sense that we think of apology, Apology, well, I'm, I, I apologize, I'm sorry for something, which is what they should have done as well, right? You ought to apologize for teaching false doctrine. But, in essence, that's what they were doing. Apology, we're talking about apologetics, okay? Apologetics is uh, a science or, or a uh, division of any theology. You can have the Presbyterian apologetics section. You can have the Baptist apologetics, or you can have the church apologetics. I just taught a class not long ago, apologetics. And what that is, is defending the doctrine. Now, if you're in a denomination and you are teaching that apologetics, you're defending that doctrine. If you're a New Testament Christian, you teach apologetics, you're defending New Testament doctrine. And so that's what this apology of the Springfield Presbytery, which is the one they formed, they sent that out. And they made statements that uh, uh, a total abandonment abandonment of all authoritative creeds except the Bible. Stone gathered the particular church together where he was preaching, sent these letters out to where these other men were participating in 
in teaching this new doctrine. And he said, this is how we're going to do it from now on. Well, because he did that, caused him some problems. Okay? He lost the friendship and support of two big congregations. Lost a lot of money. And, uh, but he didn't stop. Does, do, do things like that happen today? Do people teach the truth and they fall on hard times because they teach the truth and those who, who embrace error will allow them to suffer because of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> we, uh, for, uh, how long, how long have we been supporting, uh, Stephen Higgins? This December will be three years. We agreed to support Stephen Higley down at Fort Oglethorpe Congregation. We agreed to support him for three years. and So I get a letter in the mail. I gave it to the men. They fired Stephen from Fort Oglethorpe because they were embracing something that is contrary to the Bible. they got a problem in Fort Oglethorpe. So they fired the man who brought that to their attention. He lost money. He lost support, not just financially, but but emotionally. And, you know, do you think they care? No, they don't. So this happened to Barton W. Stone. And But the problem, though, was it took less than a year. In, in, in less than a year, they had established... Uh, like 15 congregations, seven in Ohio, eight in Kentucky. From the time they sent out the Springfield Presbyterian Apology, they had established 15 congregations. Now here's the issue. Not only had they done that within a year, they also had a problem that came to the forefront in a year. They had this party spirit. Okay, now here's what uh, uh, Stone said. He called it, he said, they savored a party spirit, and it was a handicap to their... Uh, work. Now, what does that mean? They part. They savored a party spirit. <clears throat> well, now they were eaten up with denominationalism, right? That's all they knew. You had this denomination, had that denomination, this one. Uh, you know whose denomination is better? Depends on who you ask, right? People will say in the denominational world they'll say, "Well, we're all going to heaven. We're just taking different routes." But they are a member of a particular denomination, aren't they? And so they favor one group over there. And that's why he's talking about the party spirit. Do we read about that in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think we read about that. Verses uh, 11 through 13. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. You know, Paul says, Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Was Paul crucified for your sins? That's a party spirit. And they saw that. And to their credit, they said, we can't do this. So, a year ago, they sent out the Springfield Presbytery uh, apology. They came to the understanding, we can't be a part of this. We can't be uh, uh, have this faction in sect mentality. And so, in 1804, <clears throat> they immediately begun to dissolve the Springfield Presbytery, and they sent out another document. The last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. Less than 800 words, but one of the classical documents that came out of the Restoration Movement. 
It demonstrated and showed the honesty and the sincerity of Barton W. Stone and those other men and women who wanted to get away from denominationalism. They wanted to go to the Bible and the Bible only. And uh, I won't read that to you. I can get you a copy of that if you'd like it. But it goes down through and it talks about uh, the different things that they don't believe in and they're getting out of this. Now, Stone wrote concerning their growing understanding of God's Word. He said this, When we at first withdrew, we felt ourselves free from all creeds but the Bible. Talking about withdrawing from the, the first presbytery they were part of. And since that time, by constant application to it, we are led farther from the idea of adopting creeds and confessions as standards than we were at first. Consequently, to come under the jurisdiction of that church, talking about the Presbyterian church, he said it's entirely out of the question. So, they understand they got out of one, they kind of jumped into another one they formed, they were going to make it better. And then as you continue to study the gospel, and remember what his statement was on the universality of the gospel and the requirement of faith, he said this is exactly what the Bible said. As you continue to study the Bible, you get further and further away from error and closer and closer to truth if you have an open mind. So that's where we have Barton Stone in this movement now. And it's an amazing step forward for those people. But, what about Satan? Does Satan give up? Did Satan say, well, boy, they're they're making such great strides. I'm going to move on to somebody else. <coughs> That's not at all what happened. That's when he gets real busy, isn't it? And so here's what happened. Stone and his group are looking toward New Testament Christianity. Now all those other Orthodox denominations, they couldn't stand that. So they began to put out prop, uh, uh, propaganda. They began to send letters. They began to talk about all the things that these heretics were doing, and they began to call them new lights. New lights. Now, that was a derogatory term for anybody who was off-kilter in any kind of a religious sense. They call them a new light. In fact, they used that so much referring to Stone and his movement, they began to be known as New Light Christian Church. Because they were different. Now, do we read about the New Light Christian Church in the New Testament? No, it's not there. But, remember, we're moving. We're moving in the right direction. So, not only were you having this outside problem, they began to have internal problems. Does that ever happen? (laughs) Maybe more so internal than external. You remember in Acts uh, 20, when uh, Paul called the Ephesian elders to him, he said there's going to be problems arise from within the eldership. Wolves dressed like sheep, right? Well, some men came into the group, Bates, Mitchum, and Young. They were neat, they were grave, they were very unassuming, and they were shakers. You ever heard of the shakers? Now, let's stop for just a moment here and describe this shaker movement. Okay? Uh, I think it's important because it has affected this restoration movement. Now, the shakers are officially known as the United Society of Believers 
in Christ's second appearing. Okay? The shaker uh, group is a millennium, non-tritarian, restorationist Christian sect. Really. So, they, they're millennial, right? They're millennial in the sense they believe there's going to be a thousand year period where society and the world becomes a peaceful place. People are going to want to turn to God for a thousand years and everybody's going to have an opportunity to be saved. Which, by the way, is what Alexander Campbell believed. He had a misunderstanding of the millennial. At any rate, so they're millennial. They're non-Unitarian. They don't believe in a three-person of the Godhood. They believe God is, uh, the Godhood is made up of a man and a woman. And they go to Genesis 127 to prove that. And God made them in His image. He made them man and, uh, male and female. Okay? So obviously they have, uh, uh, misused that verse. Uh, they, uh, were originally known as the Shaking Quakers. Okay, tied to the Quakers because of their ecstatic behavior during worship. Very charismatic. Okay, very charismatic, and and uh, you know we might call them uh, kind of like the uh, the Holy Rollers of today. Okay, uh, they taught uh, egalitarian ideals. Of course, an egalitarian ideal means everybody is the same. We're even, right? Uh, men aren't better than women. We believe that. But does men and women, do men and women have the same roles? No, but they taught they did. So they had, their women were leaders alongside some of the men. In fact, three of the founding members of the Shakers were women. Okay? So they they believed in this egalitarian ideal. They practiced celibacy and communal lifestyles. They were pacifists. They were uniform uh, charismatics in their worship mean everybody was jumping and running and, and doing whatever, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about this great revival in 1801, right? And, uh, they were very unassuming people. They were very, uh, uh, technologically advanced for the time. They, they would create, uh, machinery that they could use and you can go to a Shaker village today uh, that they've made into a museum. I've been to one up in Kentucky. Now, in the mid-19th century, there were about 6,000 at their height. Okay? four to 6,000. Uh, they were in 18 major communities. They were in numerous other smaller communities. But they began to dwindle for a myriad of reasons. Okay? So, in the late 19th century, members began to die. They left. There were few uh, converts. By 1920, there's only about 12 of these villages left in the United States. And uh, right now, in the present, as of 2017, there's one village of the Shakers left up in Maine. And it's called uh, Lake... Or it's called uh, uh, Sabbath Day Lake Shaker Village. It's in Maine. And uh, all the other Shaker villages that are even in existence, uh, they're museums. Okay? Very quickly, we're going to mention uh, their theology. 
<clears throat> then we'll get back into what these three men did next time. Again, we already talked about their uh, view of God, dualism. You had a man, you had a woman. They have a view of the first and second coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ was that Jesus, born of a woman, the son of a Jewish carpenter, was the first embodiment of the Christ. That was the first Christian church. Later on, there was a a woman who was born to an English blacksmith. Her name uh, was, uh, or they referred to her as Mother Anne. She was one of the founding members. And she was the second incarnation of the Christ. And she began the second Christian church of which the Shakers say they are part. Okay? So we see that dual God uh, uh, view of God. Now, uh, they had some, some odd ethics. Not so different than, uh, say, even the Catholic Church. But they understood Adam's first sin to be uh, sexual. Right? They said that that wasn't uh, uh, considered an act of purity. Therefore, marriage was done away with within the body. If you were a shaker, you weren't married because that was not pure. Okay, uh, but and they patterned that after the kingdom of God, where there's no marriage or giving in marriage. Okay, so no one's married. <clears throat> what happens if no one's married? No one's having children, right? Now. No procreation in the Shaker religion unless you came into the Shaker religion as a woman who was already pregnant. So where are they getting their children? Well, you know, sometimes they'd leave a child on a Shaker doorstep. They would uh, uh, indenture. Children would come and be with them. They might adopt. Okay, But within the United States several years ago, For a period of time, religious organizations were barred from adopting children. So what's going to happen to the Shakers? You're going to die out. You're going to die out. Today, or as of 2017, there are two members of the Shaker religion. There were three on January the 2nd. One of the ladies died at 89. There's a man and there's a woman. And... uh, if they're still alive today, and I couldn't find anything on them any later than uh, uh, 2017, but in 98, three men and women in their 20s and 30s were living in this village up in uh, Maine. But a lady by the who went by as Eldress Bertha Lindsay of the then closed community village of the Shakers called Canterbury Shaker Village disputed their membership. She said to become a shaker, you have to sign a legal document taking the necessary vows. And that document, the official covenant, is locked up in our safe. Membership is forever closed. Now, if that's the way to heaven, why would you close membership? Doesn't make sense, does it? But uh, as of 2017, Brother Arnold Had and Sister June Carpenter are living up in Maine. That is the background of these three men who showed up and began to convert and draw away some of these prime members and movers of this restoration movement that Barton W. Stone has embraced. Any comments before we close? Where's you out, don't you?
All right, we'll pick up there next time. Thank you.